0: Well, today, we are almost finished entirely with the golden calf incident and all of its consequences. Today, we're going to wrap up chapter 33. Um, After that, we'll be in chapter 34. I'm not sure how long we're going to be in chapter 34. Uh, We may camp out there a little bit, especially on the name of God. Um, God's self-revelation, what is revealed in chapter 34 is enormous elsewhere in Scripture. Um, It's just commonly repeated all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's self-revelation to Moses. So I'm not sure what exactly we're going to do in chapter 34, uh, but we may stay there a little bit. After that, we'll look at the renewal of the covenant at the end of chapter 34, and then beginning in chapter 35 all the way to chapter 39, Exodus switches back to the tabernacle. Namely, the making of all the items in the tabernacle. Now, we'll probably go, it's a a total of five chapters, we're probably going to fly through five chapters in maybe a sermon or two, which I know you may not believe me yet, but but I think we may do that. And the reason is because a lot of the material there is like almost verbatim repeated, except for things are being built. Let me give you just a, a flavor of this. For example... Exodus 36 verses beginning in verse 8 And all the craftsmen among the workmen made the tabernacle with 10 curtains they were made of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skill, skillfully worked the length of each was 28 cubits and the breadth of each uh, curtain 4 cubits all the curtains were the same size he coupled 5 curtains to one another and the other 5 curtains he coupled to one another and And on and on it goes, and it it kind of repeats everything we read in the instructions, but now it's just telling us that it's completed. Now, it's still the Word of God, okay? It's given by God for a purpose. We will go over it, but probably not as in great of detail as we did when we looked at these instructions for the first time. After that, we have chapter 40, which is putting everything that has been built together, setting up the tabernacle And God's finally coming down and dwelling with it. And then we are done with Exodus. Um, So I tell you all this because although we have, you know, technically about seven or so so more chapters to go, um, I can't really see us doing more than 10 sermons. Perhaps I'm sure you can uh, totally see me doing more than 10 sermons. I'd be a bit surprised. Maybe you wouldn't be. But uh, the end of Exodus will be here sooner than I think we think. And then we'll go into Leviticus today we are wrapping up chapter 33 and moses intercession with god we saw at the end of our text last week in verse 14 that god grants moses third petition to go up with moses and israel personally into the promised land saying my presence will go with you and i will give you rest Now, from the way I preached it, it might seem like that was the end of the matter right there. Um, Perhaps everything's back to normal. He finally got his prayer request. Um, And yet, from our scripture reading today, we see that this intercession, this dialogue between God and Moses actually continues for quite a bit longer. And in fact, Moses even has some new petitions for the Lord. Well, I chose to deal with this latter portion of the dialogue in a sermon of its own um, because there are many aspects of this portion of the text, some big, some small, um, that are maybe not terribly difficult, but they need a bit of unpacking. They need to be thought through, and I figured we would just do this in a sermon of its own. For example, just consider, what are we to make of God's telling Moses that he shall not see his face? Particularly, when just a few verses before that, in verse 11, we were told that the Lord used to speak face to face with Moses as a man speaks to his friend. It's not terribly important, uh, terribly difficult to unpack that, but it needs a little unpacking. How should we understand that? How should we not understand it? There's a lot of things like that in this portion of the text. Furthermore, in the bigger picture, what are we to make of Moses' words overall in this latter portion of the dialogue? Quite frankly, I confess to you, I was very puzzled at first as I came to look at this. It almost seems as if the bold, courageous man of faith, Moses, that we've been, uh, I've been commending to you as a model of bold prayer, now maybe falls into doubt, maybe despair. Is he asking for signs from God? Strangely enough, all of this after God has answered his prayers already, what exactly is happening here? It's interesting, just about every commentator that I found sees Moses, uh, everyone that I read, they see Moses as a model of bold prayer leading up to our text today. (laughs) But then in our present text, they start to divide in their opinions. Some are like, well, he did pretty good. He started off good. Maybe, you know, he is a sinner after all. Maybe there are some weaknesses we see coming in this passage. Um, And so all that to say, there's a lot that needs to be thought through and dealt with. And so I decided to kind of separate this from the earlier portion of the dialogue. Today, I will argue and hopefully persuade you that even in the rest of his petition, Even in the words that we have read today still, Moses is still a model of faith and prayer for us. In fact, I will argue he is a model of very, very bold faith, perhaps the boldest kind of faith that can be found. Spurgeon says, Moses' request was a large request to make. It's kind of putting it very mildly. He could not have asked for more. Why, it is the greatest petition that man ever asked of God. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. What else can you ask besides that? I think that's true. I think ultimately Moses' request in this passage comes from a heart of very bold, very confident faith in God and not doubt or despair. You know, sometimes people ask for things very boldly when in reality they are asking out of doubt. I would put Gideon in this category. He technically asks for miracles, right? There is kind of a boldness to put out a fleece and see if, uh, if God will work a miracle for you. But he was ultimately motivated by a doubt that could not accept God at His word, right? At other times, people ask for a bold thing from the Lord, but for wrong reasons, for wrong motives. I think the mother of James and John would be put in this category when she asked that her sons would sit at the right and the left hand of Christ when he comes into his kingdom. That's a bold prayer, right? I don't think its motive was correct, though. Neither of those, however, is the kind of boldness I think we see Moses here today. I think his is a boldness of faith and a simple childlike confidence that his God will withhold no good thing from him. In this too then, brothers and sisters, Moses is again a model of a boldness of faith that we ought to have in prayer for us. Several sermons ago, I talked about... The boldness of faith that comes in persevering in prayer, especially in the face of apparent parent knows from the Lord. When you don't see any answer, you keep praying and you keep praying as the widow does with the unjust judge. That is indeed a kind of boldness. There is another kind of boldness, however. Not just one that perseveres, but one that asks big things of God. Not exactly the same thing. Furthermore, just as so often you and I lack the boldness of persevering in faith, so often we lack the boldness of asking God for big things. More often than not, not only do we not ask God for big things, big things like show me your glory, I I doubt anyone has prayed that any time recently, but more often than that, we don't even ask for kind of big things. (laughs) Sometimes we we ask God just to do the bare minimum of what He can do. But faith, brothers and sisters, has a boldness to it. It has a boldness that perseveres, but a boldness that knows that there's no hard thing for God. And if it's asked according to His will, He will withhold no good thing from His children. Sadly, just as we don't prevail with God because we don't persevere so often... We see God give us so little because we ask for so very little. James says, You do not have because you do not ask. We might say, You have very little because you ask for very little. You have very little holiness because, quite frankly, you ask for very little holiness. You have very little wisdom because you ask for very little wisdom. Spurgeon says, You do pray. Otherwise, you wouldn't be the children of God at all, but oh, for more power in prayer. You have asked for a blessing. Why not ask for a far greater blessing? Thou hast done well to pray, but thou shouldest have prayed much more. What blessings are waiting? What treasures are in the hand of God ready for the man who can bend his knee? In our passage, we see that Moses is just such a man And in this too, I believe we are to emulate him as well. Well, having said that, let's turn to our text now. There's actually a lot of things we have to unpack before we can kind of even get to what I just talked about. Um, But we'll finally get there, and then we'll think through some, some ways we can grow in our boldness of faith. Beginning in verse 15, it says, And he, Moses, said to him, God, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? First, notice here again, as we saw last week, the strong connection between God's going up with Israel and Israel's being God's distinct covenant people. Moses says, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Again, to have God's covenantal presence is to be his covenantal people and for him to be your covenantal God. Second, we want to ask why Moses says what he says here. Uh, It almost sounds like maybe what God said to him in verse 14 didn't even register God says, my presence will go with you, and then he says, if your presence will not go with me, and you kind of wonder, he just said his presence would go with you, so did it not register? Um, Was he so passionately caught up that he didn't even realize? Uh, Did he fall into doubt? Did he not believe God's word? What exactly is happening here? Here we have a number of solutions, uh, all of which are plausible to some degree, not all of which are likely, in my opinion. For example, some have argued, uh, for example, A.W. Pink argues this way, and historically, uh, some kind of like lesser-known reform theologians, but they were heavy hitters in their time, they also argued this. Um, that in verse 14, when it says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest, that that should actually be translated as a question shall my presence go with you, and shall I give you rest? In which case, if that were correct, God would be giving Moses another kind of no. Please come up, with you, come up with us. Shall I go with you, and shall I give you rest? In that case, it actually makes sense that Moses would say in the following verse, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, because he hasn't actually received God's answer to his petition. Um, and it would actually be in verse 17 where God answers his prayer. This very thing that, I have, that you have spoken, I will do for you, for you have found favor in my sight. That's how some people understand uh, they make sense of Moses' words. While this idea has a lot of explanatory power, it kind of would make a lot of sense of Moses' words, Uh, there's nothing really in the Hebrew that suggests this is a rhetorical question. Um, Hebrew has very specific grammatical markers and patterns that you would see with rhetorical questions, and those aren't really here. Um, So I think it's a brilliant suggestion, but it's not really in the text. Others have suggested that in verse 14, when God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest, that that was only for Moses but it wasn't for Israel yet. And therefore, Moses keeps interceding on behalf behalf of Israel. Here, again, I don't really think that really matches up with the rest of the passage. For example, God had already told Moses and Israel to go up together collectively to the promised land. He kind of treats them as one. So if he says, I will be with you, my presence will go with you, um, even if that were spoken directly to Moses, I think it's implied Israel as well. I would take that. Furthermore, if God was saying in verse 14 that he'd go up with Moses, but not with the people, it still doesn't really make sense of what Moses says, because he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. If it was truly said to Moses, but not Israel, I would expect him to say, if your presence will go with me, but not with them, Lord, do not bring us up here, but he says me, so I don't really think that actually solves anything. Could it be that Moses is doubting God's word? He's fallen into doubt here. I find that also hard to believe, since Moses up to this point has been amazingly bold and persistent in prayer. Furthermore, God just answered his prayer, and for him to all of a sudden start doubting after God Like said yes, I don't know that that would make a lot of sense to me. If he had truly fallen into doubt, I think we would see Moses acting more like he did earlier on in the book of Exodus in Exodus 4. If you remember there, he doubts the word of the Lord that God will be with him. And so what does he do? He tries to wriggle his way out of it any way he can. Oh Lord, send someone else. Oh, but I can't do this. He's always trying to get out of it. That's not what he does here. What does he do? He keeps on praying. People who fall into doubt don't typically persevere in their petition. So I don't think that makes sense either. Well, what is going on here? Why does Moses say what he says? I think John Gill, uh, I think his, his answer is very astute, and I think it's very correct. He says, Though God had promised his presence, which was the thing requested, Moses could not forbear expressing himself after this manner to show the high esteem he had of this blessing and how worthless and insignificant everything else was without it. Let me read that again. Though God had promised his presence, which was the thing Moses requested, Moses could not forbear expressing himself after this manner to show the high esteem he had of this blessing and how worthless and insignificant everything else was without it. I think that makes a lot of sense. And let me, let me explain to you how exactly those words, those words express uh, gratitude. I think Moses is expressing his great relief and thankfulness. And a way I think we can think about this is if you were to see a child, your child, running towards a busy street when there are cars flying by, and you were to run and to grab them and to stop and to hold them and feel that, that sigh of relief, you might say something like, if you had gotten hurt, I don't know what would have happened to me. You express your great relief by showing how bad the opposite, uh, if, if the opposite had happened, how bad that would have been. You're expressing your relief by talking about that. In this sense, then, Moses, you know, God says to him, my presence shall go up with you. It's as if Moses were to say, thank you, Lord. Praise God, because if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here, and we would not be your distinct people. I think he's expressing relief by talking about how bad the opposite alternative would have been, though it has not happened, all right? I think that makes sense of the text. Verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Again, as Moses has expressed himself more fully, so the Lord expresses his promise and expands on it more fully. Notice as well, he he says specifically, You have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses previously said, If I have found favor in your sight, and because you know me by name, right, please answer my petition. The Lord is saying he will do so because of that. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. What are we now to make of this request? Perhaps we might not fault Moses for what he's said up to this point, but has he gone too far now? You know, some people don't fault what he said up to this point, but at this point, some people do. Calvin, for example, he, 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 he's not, he doesn't totally like what Moses does here. So what's Moses doing? Well, first, at least, we should understand what his request is, and then we'll try to understand why Moses asks it, okay? First of all, what is Moses even asking? I'm just going to read Gil here. There's a million opinions on this. I think Gil is easy, and I think he's right. He says, Moses asks for not any visible luster, splendor, and brightness as a symbol of the divine presence that he had seen before, nor the glorious essence of God, as some suggest, which is invisible and cannot be seen, and of which Moses could not be ignorant, nor the glory of the heavenly state, which also Moses must know he could not see see until he came there. But he seems to mean some visible, glorious representation of God, such as he had never seen, though he had been with God so long on the mountain in the cloud and heard his voice and saw some appearances of brightness and glory. I think that's exactly correct. I think Moses is asking for some kind of visible manifestation of God's glory but such as he had never seen before. One of the reasons why I think that's correct, because that's exactly what he gets. And the way that we know this um, is because the effects of this manifestation of God's glory upon Moses have never happened before. He has seen God's glory. The people have seen God's glory as well to different degrees. They've seen it on top of Mount Sinai. He has gone into the glory cloud of God. But what happens to Moses after this particular revelation has never happened before. For example, we're told in chapter 34, 29 through 30, when Moses came down from Sinai after God's revealing his glory, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. That's never happened before. So this is a particularly powerful manifestation of God's glory that Moses is seeking. Interestingly, it seems that this special manifestation of God's glory to Moses was permanent or semi-permanent as well. It's not just upon Mount Sinai, but it seems to be whenever Moses deals with the Lord after this, he has the same degree of glory with God. For example, chapter 34 through 35 continues, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what, was, what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went to speak with him, um, until he went to speak with him. So it seems that this happens, it's not just a one-time thing. It's almost like Moses, the, the privilege, uh, uh, the, the amount of glory God permits him to, to see personally um, is, is taken up permanently after this. Now that's what Moses is asking for. Now we need to ask why. I think there's two reasons why. There's a reason, and then there's a reason behind the reason. The immediate reason why God asked to see God's glory is, as I've said before, that God's glory is connected to His presence, such that where God manifests His presence, He manifests His glory. And up to this point, throughout this whole chapter, Moses' main concern has been the presence of God. In many ways, when he asks, show me your glory, show me a greater manifestation of your glory such as I've never seen before, he's really saying, show me a manifestation of your presence such as I've never seen before. Now, as far as the reason behind the reason, why does Moses ask for a greater manifestation of God's presence, this is a bit harder, but an even more important question to ask because it gets to Moses' motive, which ultimately determines the rightness or wrongness of his request. Why does Moses ask for this? I think most would agree that Moses here is not asking for a sign due to a lack of faith like Gideon. I personally think he asks for more of God's presence for his own reassurance and comfort And also, although he's the only one that can really see it, I think Israel, by seeing Moses shine, also sees God's presence and would be comforted and reassured as well. But I don't think that necessarily comes from doubt. Sometimes we seek reassurance and comfort of God's presence with us, but that's just a part of what it means to be born again as a child of God. We long for our Father's presence His presence comforts us. And so I do not think Moses wants this um, from a sinful way. I don't think he's doubting. I think it's bold, but I don't think um, it's like he's asking for a sign. Some think that while Moses' motive was not sinful, yet the request itself was perhaps a little bit foolish. Maybe he went too far. Calvin says, Thus far, the desires of Moses had been confined within the limits of moderation and sobriety. But now he is carried beyond due bounds and longs for more than is lawful and expedient. Still, Calvin continues, it is not foolish curiosity which impels him to this, for Moses had no other design than to be animated to confidence, whereby he might more cheerfully go on with his charge." So Calvin sees that it comes from ultimately a good desire, though perhaps it's beyond moderation and sobriety, as he says. I'm going to go ahead and and rush in where fools, uh, uh, what is it, angels dare to tread, whatever, and I'm going to disagree with Calvin. I wouldn't say that Moses' desire necessarily goes beyond moderation and sobriety. It's just incredibly bold. I don't think that necessarily means it's immoderate. I do agree that there's probably some ignorance on on the part of Moses. Uh, Moses may not fully understand the full implications of what he's asking for. And so God has to clarify, okay, Moses, I'll do this, but you can't see my face, right? Otherwise, I'm going to fry you and destroy you. You can't see my face. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily beyond moderation. You know, a child might ask a very bold request of their parent. Daddy, can I go to work with you every day? There's a little bit of innocent ignorance there. Well, no, you can't, right? You don't understand. I I think that's very cute. Um, We wouldn't necessarily say that comes from a lack of moderation. It comes more from a bold confidence in the parent's love, a desire to be with the parent. That's how I would understand Moses' request here. John Gill says, Moses Having by his prayers obtained much, wants more, and is emboldened to ask it, and in a good measure had it, as the following words show. I think that's true. I think Moses started out with a bold faith to to begin with, prevailed with God, and as Gill says, his faith was all the more emboldened to ask for even greater blessings. I know that I have experienced that. Um, When I've seen God answer prayer, that emboldens your heart to ask for more prayer. To say, wow, I guess this prayer thing actually works. I guess God's not lying in his word. Maybe I'll actually take him at his word and ask for greater things and ask for more things. I think Moses' motives ultimately come from a confidence that God is his loving father who will withhold no good thing from him. And the worst case scenario is God says no. But Moses asks anyway because of his confidence. Spurgeon comments, It seems to me the greatest stretch of faith that I have ever heard or read of. It was great faith which made Abraham go into the plain to offer up intercession for a guilty city like Sodom. It was vast faith which enabled Jacob to grasp the angel. It was mighty faith which enabled Elijah to rend the heavens and fetch down rain from the skies. But it appears to me that this prayer contains a greater amount of faith than all the others put together. It is the greatest request that man could make of God. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. I think that's right. Are your prayers... Bold in any way, brothers and sisters? Perhaps you pray for good things. Things according to God's will. Things according to God's word. That is all well and good, and you ought to continue to do so. But are your prayers marked by any degree of boldness? (laughs) Faith, brothers and sisters, has a boldness to it. And if we are to pray pray by faith and to grow by faith, we need to pray boldly as well. Spurgeon says, when God has heard prayer for one thing, faith comes and asks for two. And when God has given those two, faith asks for six. Faith can scale the walls of heaven. She is a giant grace. She takes mountains by their roots and puts them on other mountains and so climbs to the throne in confidence with large petitions, knowing she shall not be refused. That's the boldness of faith. I shared uh, with people at the prayer meeting a couple weeks ago, the Lord has been uh, convicting me of weak prayers, which betray ultimately uh a weakness of faith i encouraged us let's pray more boldly and at one point i said you know how about we pray for for more visitors god actually answered that today right we just have like don't look at them we don't want to make them nervous but i said how about we pray for more visitors and carlos said how about we pray for new members i said well let's not get carried away and he's like you said to pray more boldly and i was like all right you're right you know Let's not just pray that evangelism goes well and we don't get beat up and people listen to us. Let's pray people get saved. (laughs) Why not? So often, brothers and sisters, the larger the difficulty in our lives, the larger the proverbial mountain, the smaller our prayers. In reality, it should be the opposite. When meeting with a large difficulty, you should come with a large petition before the Lord. The Lord convicted me of this again lately. Um, I realized that um, I realized the way I was praying to God, if I had to preach on a text that I had no idea how I was going to preach it, and it was very difficult. I would pray, "God, please just give me a sermon. <laughs> Anything? I won't be picky." as long as something comes out of my mouth, I'll be fine. If it was a text I was somewhat familiar with and understand, understood where I was going to go, I would pray, God, I pray that you would make this sermon a particular blessing for your people. Would you make this a particularly powerful, encouraging word for your people? But if it's a hard text, a big mountain, oh God, just give me anything and I'll be happy, right? We should do the opposite. Is God not able to also give in a particularly encouraging sermon from a particularly difficult text? Indeed, he can. It's not hard for him. So I've been challenging when I come upon such texts. God, please don't just help me to eke out a sermon. May it be a true blessing for your people. That's a much bolder prayer, and it stretches our faith. Jeremiah 32, 27: Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Oh, You may have an enormous difficulty you're facing, a huge Mount Everest-style mountain range of proverbial mountains before you. That is nothing to the God of all flesh. Look not to the size of the difficulty, but to the size and power of your God. Ask for bold things that are according to God's will. Don't just ask that your children would come to salvation, but that God would do it soon, and that He would, in fact, make them very godly Christians and use them mightily in the kingdom of God. That's more bold. Don't just ask that God would help you to to not fall into temptation this week, but to truly mortify your sin and grow in true holiness. That's even more bold. Here, I think one of, of course, the great reasons for small petitions is small faith, as I've just said. There may be a few other reasons, though, and I want to give some exhortation in. First, I think that sometimes our petitions are small because we don't actually have petitions at all. And what I mean by that is sometimes we can bring a situation before the Lord but we don't actually make any petitions of him. Um, If you come to prayer meeting on Wednesday night, you know that I am am the proverbial hall monitor, uh, the prayer monitor, and it's my job to annoyingly prod people to to maybe pray in some more ways. Uh, And one way I try to do this is, you know, we might pour out our hearts to one another. Very difficult situation going on that week. But I'll say, what are some requests we can make? How can you turn that from pouring out your heart to making actual requests of the Lord? And I think that sometimes, and I'm guilty of this as well, I may pour out my heart, but I don't actually ask him for anything. Now The Lord is merciful. His spirit intercedes, and he often gives even when we don't ask. But we ought also to make actual requests of the Lord. At other times, I think we do make petitions, but they are far too vague and general. There's a kind of specificity to a boldness of faith in prayer, brothers and sisters. God, give me the strength and energy to make it through the day. That's not bad. I think it could be better and more bold. I would encourage you that one way you can grow in boldness is to actually bol- uh, to, to be a bit more specific and less vague in your petitions. For example, in my sermon writing, my, my ever, my, my travail of faith every week, I've more or less always tried to pray and ask for God's help before I work on a sermon. I have been more encouraged lately, I, I being, uh, getting this from Spurgeon, to actually be much more detailed and pray over all the various aspects of it. God, please help me with an intro. I have really no idea what I'm going to do with this. I feel like this third point is really lacking. I need some wisdom in editing. Should I cut that out? And, and the whole sermon has been covered and saturated in prayer. So also, brothers and sisters, pray over the whole day. God, give me prayer, or give me energy for this day. Okay, okay. God, help me when I wake up. Help my mind and body to wake up. Help my soul to wake up. Would you grant me patience with the children? Help me after nap time, after lunch, as I often get tired. Help me to continue to make it through that. Please especially give me the strength towards the end of the night to have particular diligence. That's a little bit more bold because it actually asks for specific things. I have found those kind of prayers are far more powerful And I have never been disappointed when I pray specifically over various things. I've always found God answering very specific prayers. Lastly, another big reason why I think we stop asking, we stop short of asking God for big things, or at least bigger things, it could perhaps be a well intentioned but misplaced moderation. Perhaps we fear that by asking too much of God, maybe it betrays a lack of contentment. Perhaps it betrays an arrogance or maybe a presumption on our part to ask things of God like that. Brothers and sisters, there are many things in which we are to have godly contentment and moderation, but there are many things in which we are to have no contentment whatsoever in this life, so to speak. There's a place for godly discontentment in the soul of the Christian. If you've arrived content at the amount of holiness you've grown in, you should be discontent with that in this life. If you're satisfied with the amount of Christ you have, you should really press on into seeking more Christ. If you're totally satisfied with all the lost souls in your life that haven't come yet to faith you should really be dissatisfied to pray with that. God is sovereign, of course. But there's a place in which our heart is to still yearn. And so often we don't ask for big things. We don't ask for more holiness. We don't ask for more wisdom because we have a godly, uh, an, an ungodly contentment where our hearts ought to be pressing on. Turn with me uh, quickly to 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 13. I shared this passage uh, at the prayer meeting a few weeks ago, but I want to share it again. 2 Kings 13, verses 14 through 19. I remember reading this passage a long time ago as a new Christian, and it struck me as very strange. Um, But now I think of it a lot. 2 Corinthians 13, 14 through 19. When Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, said, shoot, and he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. Mm. So often, our prayers small like that, having a whole quiver's worth of arrows with which to shoot, we only shoot three instead of six. Perhaps Elisha would would say to us, you should have prayed more boldly, for now you shall receive your your request, but no more. If you had prayed more boldly, you would have seen an entire end to your sin, but now you shall still struggle along with it. It may be presumptuous at times to ask for things that are not according to God's will, as was the case with the mother of James and John, but it is never presumptuous to ask for things that God has told you to ask for, brothers and sisters. The contrary is true. It's presumptuous to not pray for those things. It's an insult to the power of God. It's an insult to his generous heart that delights to answer prayer when we don't pray boldly for those things that he has told us to pray for. Lastly, and I think for me this is another big challenge, sometimes I pray small prayers because my eyes are on the size of my problem and not God, but sometimes I pray small prayers because I have a very small view of God's love. I doubt his generosity. I doubt not his power, but his inclination towards me. I view him not as loving father, but as wrathful judge. John tells us that there's a direct correlation between our confidence and boldness in prayer and our apprehension of God's love for us in the gospel promises. He says in 1 John 5, 14 through 15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know we have the requests that we have asked of him. I want my son to have a confidence when he asks things of me, but I can tell you he has total confidence when he asks things of his grandma he knows grandma will give him just about anything he wants. <laughs> sometimes I even say, now no, look, if he's doing this, don't. And she kind of smiles like, okay, I'm still going to be a grandma. And then she just drives away and takes him to grandma's house, right? He has a confidence. My grandmother will withhold no good thing for me. And so he's very bold. And sometimes we have to tell him, she's your grandmother. You need to be respectful. But it comes from 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 a complete trust that I can trust this woman. There is a total love and generosity for me. And according to John, that is also true with our Father. There's a tremendous confidence in prayer when we are confident with God. Contrary, he says in chapter 4 of 1 John 16-18, through So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Meaning, whoever fears does not full, is not fully confident of God's love for them in Jesus Christ in the gospel. And if you're not fully confident, you're not going to be confident that whatever you ask, God will give you and you will have the petitions you have asked for. There's a direct uh, correlation between the two. Now, why do people lack confidence? It could be several reasons. Perhaps they keep fooling around with sin. One of the reasons why we should hate sin, brothers and sisters, is because it wrecks our conscience and distorts our understanding of God. That's one more reason why you should hate sin. It shatters your confidence. And all of us here know when we have just said something or done something we should not have, we are not very bold and confident in prayer, are we? Rather, we are awaiting punishment. Perhaps it could be because you had an experience with an earthly father who was very unloving towards you, and you have put that upon the Lord. Or perhaps you need to take your eyes off of your sin and put them on Christ and His righteousness. You need to abide in the love of Christ, in the love that the Father has for you by faith. That will give you a bold confidence Christian, God loves you. Sometimes we view God as this curmudgeonly stingy guy. Maybe he'll answer things, but really, not really. He'll throw you a few pennies, right? Like we're we're homeless people on the sidewalk asking God to answer our prayers, and he's like, here's my pennies for the day, right? That's not God. God gave you his son. What more proof do you need of his immeasurable love? And there's a direct correlation between God's immeasurable love and his immeasurable generosity. He loves to answer your prayers, Christian. He delights in it, just like my mom loves to give toys for my son and loves to do all kinds of things because she loves him. God loves and delights to answer your prayers. You will never bring a big request to God and you go, I think we need to calm down with this holiness stuff. I know I told you a lot that it's good in my word, but now things are getting out of hand, all right? When I told you to pray for sinners, I didn't anticipate you were going to do it this much, okay? You'll never hear those kind of things from God. He delights. The problem is not a lack of God's generosity, but a weakness in our own prayers. Be bold, Christian you will see god answer your prayers now he's not he's not a machine that you put a quarter in and you turn and whatever you want comes out it has to be according to his will and there are indeed times when you even ask what appear to be good things according to his will boldly and he still says no i think that that's one of the reasons why god Uh, says again, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and be gracious to whom I will be gracious. He's uh, reasserting his his divine freedom and sovereignty to give or not give to who he wants to. But you know, so often we read that passage as though God were saying no. In the context, he's saying yes. He answers and gives Moses an immeasurable manifestation of his presence. In closing, and we didn't even get to looking at the actual, the rest of the text. We'll look at that next time. Be bold, brothers and sisters. You have a really big God. Nothing is hard for Him. Be bold in godly desires. Do not be slack. Do not be content in holiness. Do not be content uh, in, in prayers for for unbelieving family members and friends, be bold, have a voracious appetite, and know that God can satisfy that appetite. And lastly, be confident in His love, because He didn't put it upon you for anything in you, but because He's merciful and loving. Therefore, ask. The worst He can say is no, and more often than not, He says yes. So pray and be bold. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great mercies. Oh, Lord, we confess and repent of how so often our view of you is so distorted and not according to your word. So often, Lord, we see you really in our own image as small and weak, unable to overcome the difficulties of this life. At other times, we imagine you, um, not according to your word, as curmudgeonly, um, as, as as angry towards us when we have received mercy in Christ, and we confess that none of this is according to your word. Oh, Father, I pray for us at Sovereign Joy that you would give us a bold faith, Lord. That you would make us a people who pray boldly, not out of presumption, not out of folly, but out of faith in your word, in a faith in gospel confidence, and in the confidence that our God is the God of all flesh. Would you grant us that, Lord? I pray. I pray all these things in the name of Christ.